This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Focus on the Family's Bring Your Bible to School Day, powered by students nationwide, October 3rd. When you sign up to participate, you'll also be entered to win a trip to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Go to bringyourbible.org. It is Wednesday, August 14th, and you are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm with my co-host, Mark Galley. What's up, Mark? What's up is everything is good today. Just got back from nine days of vacation, so I'm feeling really good. About you, even. About the podcast. Well, about I just the got magazine. back from vacation 49 days ago. <laughs> so you're ready for another. <laughs> I completely empathize with you. I like. I love that you are like so obsessed with your vacation because that's exactly how I feel when I come back. I'm yeah. like so present to my vacation. It's, it is painful. I completely feel how... So just warning listeners, I'll be phoning in from Colorado Springs. No, no, I mean uh, Steamboat Springs Yeah. in future episodes. So Yes, and if you ever want to just like, how can I entertain Mark in a conversation, you know, while I just eat this plate of food right here, you can ask him about fishing in Colorado. <laughs> and grandchildren. I'll tell that. All right, who's joining us today? <laughs> Leah Payne. She is Assistant Professor of Christian Studies at George Fox University and Portland Seminary. Her first book, Gender and Pentecostal Revivalism, Making a Female Ministry in the Early 20th Century, won the 2016 NUMA, the Journal of the Society for Pentecostal Studies Book Award. And more important than anything else, she's co-host of a podcast called Weird Religion. And I can't help but think she's talking about my religion. I attend a Anglican Church, but maybe she's talking about others. I don't know. Would you like to clarify, Leah? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I love that intro. Yes, it is a religion and pop culture podcast. So mostly we talk about weird religious stuff in TV and film. So uh, um, Anglicans, no one is safe from that. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you need a few tips on what's weird about Anglicanism, just give me a call. Ooh, I do. Okay, I will. <laughs> Can you share something recently that you guys talked about as far as stuff being weird? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, we just posted an episode today about Elizabeth Holmes, uh, the founder of a company that was supposed to be creating a blood test that didn't, didn't actually work. And we reviewed an HBO documentary about her called The Inventor. You may have heard it was a national story, but we talk a lot about uh, the religious significance of that. So, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. We're silly. I'm definitely intrigued. I listened to a podcast series <laughs> about her, so I would love to think of the religious undertones about that. So it's called Weird Religion. But actually, right now, everyone should listen to keep listening to our podcast which is also going to be interesting in its own way. So let's explain a little bit about why Leah is joining us today. Two weeks ago, the Assemblies of God General Council elected a woman to its executive leadership team. After more than 100 years in existence, Ohio Minister Donna Barrett now holds the role of Assemblies of God General Secretary, the third highest position in the denomination. As CT reported last week, she is now both the first woman to fill a seat on the AG's six-person executive leadership team and the first woman elected by its ministers to such a position for a four-year term. In her role, Barrett will oversee the credentialing of ministers, church chartering, church statistics, and the world's largest Pentecostal archive. 
In May earlier this year, the Foursquare Church's Tammy Donahue ran unsuccessfully for the denomination's presidency. If Donahue had been elected, she would have been the first female president since the denomination's founder, Amy Semple McPherson. Both the Foursquare Church and Assemblies of God allow women to serve as pastors, but women have largely been absent from the larger Pentecostal leadership structures. This week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to examine why this is so and also learn more about how Pentecostals understand church leadership. All right, Mark, we did a story, as I mentioned earlier, about Donna Barrett's election, I guess. Yeah, election last week. And I didn't know if you had a gut check response to this. Uh, not a not a gut check response to that in particular, but one of the reasons I'm anxious to have a conversation with Leah is because of the uh, shift in just the way Pentecostals have engaged women in various levels of leadership. When it when the movement first started, there were many women pastors and preachers. Florence Florence, what's the yes. last name though? Crawford. Crawford. I remember when we I was an, yeah. I was editor at Christian History for a number of years, and we did an issue on Pentecostalism. And the thing that struck me was the number of dynamic women who were pastors and preachers in the early years, and how that shifted over time. And I've just often wondered about that. What's going on? I, I understand why women would be more interested in the pastorate than in administration, but completely absent from an administration strikes me as a little unusual. So anyway, I'm interested in pursuing some of those lines of questions. I am definitely always interested in. Pentecostalism and charismatic, the charismatic movement. In fact, I had a conversation with Leah last year where I was just like, I just want to cover this part of the church a lot more. And definitely their relationship with women is one that is interesting to me. But I would say in general, what I find interesting is that it seems from an outsider perspective that they have been more open to different people assuming church leadership in their structures, at least within the local church, right? Or that's that's what I've kind of observed maybe from the outside. And so then when I realized that this may not necessarily be true when you go up the denominational ladder, that's kind of where my questions start to come in and what I'm looking forward to today to learning more about because I don't know that much about it. Yeah. And then Pentecostals have a way of developing and bringing onto the world really dynamic and interesting people. I will have to say I was quite enamored with Amy Simple McPherson. She was an amazing woman to watch preach and I read some of her sermons and they were quite, quite remarkable. We are going to definitely get into all of this more today. So before we start asking you some questions, Leah, about church leadership in this movement, I was just wondering if you can help Mark and I make sure we're using the proper terminology to refer to these denominations and the movement overall. A lot of times if you see somebody writing about people who speak in tongues or believe in divine healing or have, you know, mystical experiences with God, they will call them Pentecostal charismatic. A lot of times it's like Pentecostal dash charismatic. Part of that has to do with the fact that it's just a huge movement, a huge global movement. So it's really hard to define. But in general, we use the word Pentecostal to refer to groups of people, denominations, traditional denominations that tie their roots back to the Azusa Street revival, which was a revival in the early 20th century in Los Angeles. And then we use the word charismatic to talk about a group that comes on along a little bit later in the late 20th century, mid to late 20th century. And that group of people, charismatic really refers to the practices like speaking in tongues or visions or prayers for divine healing. But that could apply to someone who's Roman Catholic or Episcopalian or any kind of American version of Christianity. So both of those terms get used. Sometimes they get used interchangeably, but that's 
in general, how scholars of the movement use them. I want to talk about leadership now and theirs and, and what has been unique within the Pentecostal tradition compared to, you know, obviously other Christian movements with the ways that this tradition has defined leadership. It's hard to answer for such a big movement, but I'll say in general, Pentecostals have done some things that are very unique and then some things that are just like any other version of Protestantism. The origins of the Pentecostal movement are outside of the standard kind of corridors of power in Protestant mainline or evangelical Christianity. For example, William Seymour, one of the founders of the movement, he was one of the leaders of the Azusa Street Revival. African-American man did not have traditional ordination or seminary education. And many of of the early leaders in the movement were more like that. The movement has leaders who've been identified not by a seminary degree or ordination or any kind of traditional form like your average Presbyterian. But in other ways, they're just like any other American Protestant in that they're a form of revivalism. So this idea of reviving a supposedly dead form of American religion goes way back in American history. It predates the Republic. Um, So people like Jonathan Edwards or George Whitefield, they're they're trying to revive Christianity. And the way revivalists identify leaders is this thing they call a calling, right? Um, This ecstatic experience with God, wherein a woman or man is called into some sort of leadership role. So Pentecostals really rely on that. That is actually not that different from a lot of other American Protestants, especially evangelicals. So Billy Graham was certainly not a Pentecostal, but he had a calling experience. So they're like and not like. We had a guest on the show and we were talking about ordinations worldwide and what they have in common and don't have in common. And it was one thing that was in common in all of them, uh, all across the world and all across all denominations, was this sense that the minister to be had to have a sense of calling. But I think you're absolutely right, Leah, that in Pentecostal, that trumps pretty much everything else, whereas other denominations might give the the candidate a psychological battery of tests or uh, tests on Bible knowledge or insist that they go to seminary. But I think the the dynamism of Pentecostalism is that it, it puts the priority on the call and sets people free to do ministry with that. That's right. And in a long time in the movement's history, a lot of times people, let's see here, they didn't prefer the traditional methods of leadership identification. So they would, in fact, reject things like seminary. Even when I was first started studying it, they would refer to it as cemetery <laughs> um, instead of seminary. Yeah. Uh, so like there, there was the idea that some of the traditional forms of raising up leaders could actually end up ruining a ministry. And so for a long time, there was a I, I think it's okay to call it an anti-intellectual bent to the movement. And so people preferred calling because it existed outside of that. And plus you could be, you know, five years old and receive a calling. And Pentecostals have a, a history of children preachers. All right. So are there particular Bible characters or verses that they use to bolster this understanding or case that they're making as far as calling? I wouldn't say that they're all that different from other evangelicals or mainline Protestants. When it comes to picking Bible passages, I would say that Pentecostals tend to be big fans of passages that highlight 
spiritual authority or this God-given mantle, to use a bible word. So passages like the anointing of David, who's this unexpected leader, and he's called by God through a prophet, those are popular. And for women leaders in the movement, biblical figures like Deborah, Holda even, Junia, those ones get used a lot as examples for church leadership. But again, I don't know that that would be all that different from you know, a woman who's a Baptist who's who's arguing for a, a calling to the ministry. To what extent has this understanding of calling and church leadership directly contributed to the growth of the Pentecostal movement? I think that having a template for an unexpected leader, which is is definitely a trope that gets used a lot in Pentecostal writings. In fact, a lot of early Pentecostal leaders, women and men, when they would talk about their calling to the ministry, oftentimes they'd tell a story wherein they'd say, I was called by God, but then I said no, kind of like Jonah or something like that. And then eventually I said yes, and isn't this this just, oh, it's so unexpected, what a surprise. Having that kind of template certainly gives Pentecostals an ability or a high tolerance for experimentation when it comes to leaders. <laughs> so I, I've heard my husband was telling me, oh, you know what it is? It's high risk, high reward. You know, So they'll accept the callings of a lot of different people. Some of those, the, the rewards are great. And there are people who have, according to any revivalist, usually measures their success in terms of numbers. You know, So there'll be big ministries and they're doing a lot of activities. But then there are also the high risk cases, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker or Jimmy Swagger. There's a riskiness. If you're gonna if you're gonna have an expansive sense of calling, like that God can call anyone. But then there's also the rewards of finding people who, like you mentioned, Amy Semple McPherson. I also just think that she's spectacular. And she's not someone that a really traditional Anglican church would ordain probably. God forbid. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> so. Well let me let me add something here just by way of historical contrast or comparison, I should say. It was a common theme in the early church for a bishop to uh, many bishops were drafted into becoming bishops. That was true of Ambrose, who became a famous preacher and the main reason for the conversion of Augustine. He tells the story about how he's almost dragged into the episcopacy by the populace, and he didn't want it, didn't want anything to do with it. So that does seem to be something that recurs in church history, that kind of story or theme. I'm not saying it's false. I'm just saying that seems that it obviously happens in the Bible. It happened in the early church. It's happening in the Pentecostal movement. So it's an interesting phenomenon. It is. And I think it you know, I'm sure the Apostle Paul told the story of himself, his own calling to people. And I, I often wonder if it's a way to encourage yourself when things are difficult. You can say, well, it wasn't just me who wanted this, you know. In fact, I didn't want it at all. <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, I was a pastor for 10 years, and uh, that was the thing when I was hanging on by my fingernails during one church experience that was very hard. I didn't have, I never had the sense that I didn't want to do it, but I definitely had a sense that God was calling me to do it, and that was the only reason I stuck it out. So we, we mentioned a couple high-profile televangelists who illustrated maybe the spectacular way in which this idea of calling and maybe you can throw in their celebrity and cult of personality went awry. But 
I'm sure there are other smaller or at least less conspicuous ways that this plays out as well. And so maybe you can say, talk about some of these other complications that can arise yeah, when you're using this idea of leadership. One of the complications for leaders in the Pentecostal movement, particularly people who are from minoritized communities, one of the things that is complex about that is in order to lead from a sense of calling, you need followers, right? So you need people who are going to recognize God's call on your life to be a leader. And so what what happens in many scenarios, for example, in the case of, of women as ministry leaders, they may feel a sense of calling. Unfortunately, there are certain scenarios wherein women are not in a community where, where people have the imagination to recognize that calling. So they, they're sort of used to seeing it in the traditional male form, and they're not used to seeing it in a woman. And so that's where something like a seminary education or a an ordaining body, if they have the power to say, yes, you know, we recognize your calling, that can in some ways bolster a woman's case to be recognized as a pastor. So if you just have the calling, you're sort of dependent on something that can work for you or against you, which is the the congregation members themselves. So I'm also curious, you mentioned a couple minutes ago, this idea of the movement being associated with an anti-intellectualism. But, you know, today, are there Pentecostal seminaries or divinity schools? Is there official ordination process within some of the denominations? Oh, sure. Yeah. In fact, the journey that Pentecostals have been on in terms of creating institutions of higher education is is not dissimilar to many conservative or fundamentalist schools that broke away from mainline schools in the early 20th century. Pentecostals didn't go through those that break um, in the early 20th century, in part because they were just forming in the early 20th century, but they have created their own school systems. For example, you, we are talking a little bit about the Assemblies of God today. They've got their own network of universities and seminaries. And so there's a robust intellectual world that's been created there. So they were a little bit slower to get on board with it, maybe than other versions of Protestantism, but they're they're in it now. I can witness to that in that I went to a World Congress, can't remember the, the precise name, but it was a, a larger gathering where the Pentecostal Reinhold Bonnke was speaking, so it was more. But as part of that meeting, the, the it was a global meeting of Pentecostal theologians across the world. And that was in Sweden a few years ago. But at any rate, the thing that struck me, having been at many academic theological conferences, what was shocking and refreshing was after the first lecture— the moderator got up and said, okay, now let's break into small groups and pray for one another and lay hands on one another. And the room did that and erupted in all sorts of prayer and tongues. <laughs> it was like, this is the way theological meetings ought to ha- go, <laughs> it seemed to me. <laughs> you know, I can attest to that too. I attend the Society for Pentecostal Studies annual meeting almost every year. And uh, the first time I went, I usually go to the American Academy of Religion, which is a, also a great gathering of scholars, much larger. It's like 11,000. And it's scholars of religion broadly. So there's 
There's a lot of different folks. The Society for Pentecostal Studies is very small. And the first time I attended a meeting, I was used to the very sterile academic world where it's quiet. You don't really even touch another human being. And I walked into the room full of Pentecostals. Someone gave me a hug and a kiss on the cheek right away. (laughs) And, you know, so it's a much different culture. You're right. They kind of have made their own hybrid of Pentecostal churchiness and the academy together. Yes. Wow. That's really super interesting. And also like cool that they've been able to retain that part of them as well and haven't had to just conform to the coldness. To the, to the coldness and bore, <laughs> boredom of academic conferences. <laughs> well, they do. They've, they've been willing to do the boring stuff every now and then, unfortunately. I think we should spice it up and add some televangelists. There you go. But that's just me. <laughs> so, Leah, earlier you brought up the fact that this movement has a lot of roots in the revivalist movement. And a couple of years ago, I worked on this article about Jarena Lee, who was an African-American woman and preacher during the early 1800s, I want to say, who preached to both black and white audiences, also had a really intense conversion story that she spoke out of. And part of the reason I wanted to work on the story was I found that it was pretty remarkable in that context, and maybe even today, to have a black woman up in front and teaching and preaching in that time. And so I'm just wondering, how far back can you find women preachers or teachers in the Pentecostal movement? Actually, you know, you brought up someone who many people think of as a as a precursor, you know, adrenally, along with Phoebe Palmer and many other kind of holiness preachers ha- are, are thought of as forerunners to the Pentecostal movement. But the Pentecostal movement uh, from the outset included women in high profile roles. So Mariah Woodworth Eder would be one of them, Jenny Seymour. There are lots of, of women in from the outset contributing to the movement. And when you're saying from the outset, how far are we going back in terms of? Oh, the the early 20th century. So the early 1900s. I'm just curious, how how was that something that was just embedded as an assumption of, of how this movement was practiced from the onset? I think one contributing factor is theological. And it's this idea that the Holy Spirit can move and where the Spirit wills and call who the Spirit calls. The earliest versions of the Pentecostal movement, especially, now there's some disagreement in scholarly circles about when did the movement actually start, but a lot of people think the Azusa Street Revival is as good a place as any to to identify as the origin of the movement. It was certainly the biggest revival that created Pentecostalism, and that movement was characterized negatively by by the press in that era, but it was characterized as interracial, interethnic, uh, and as a movement that also had women and men. So it was already doing something that was very radical in the early 20th century, this idea that, that people from different ethnicities and women and men were all worshiping and preaching and doing other kinds of Pentecostal practices together. That was very strange. It's remarkable now. Think about that in the early 20th century. So this idea that the Spirit 
can create and accomplish something like that. I think that's how at least early Pentecostals talked about it. And I would think they had got their inspiration from the Pentecostal experience in Acts, where Peter stands up and quotes Joel, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. I would think that would have a clue for them that anyone who gets up and says something that seems like the word from the Lord, that's good enough for us. Yes, absolutely. And they also had a really a heightened sense of eschatology, this idea that Jesus was going to return soon, and it was tied directly to their experiences. So if they were experiencing speaking in tongues and all of these things that Joel identifies, then surely Jesus must be coming back soon. And if Jesus is coming back soon, we all need to get to work. So it doesn't matter if you're a woman, you know, you you should be about uh, the work of God. So there was a real sense of urgency that also drove that. So we've talked about Amy Semple McPherson a couple times now, but I would love to hear more about her and what her life and work was. And I'm sure Mark will chime in as well on this. <laughs> I'd love to hear from you, Mark, as well. Amy Semple McPherson is one of the funnest people to talk about in the Pentecostal um, movement, in part because she was just a really entertaining person. She was a Canadian-born, ended up migrating to California, to Los Angeles. Her ministry really got going right as the American film business was going. And this idea, this thing called celebrity culture was really kicking into high gear. And she had a particular talent to attract media and all forms of attention. And she did that as a way of uh, ministering. And so she had one of the, the first major mega churches. Uh, she created a denomination, the Foursquare Church, as it's known now. She had a radio station. That's one of the things that most people know about her. And her worship services were this celebrity-infused, vaudeville-inspired show. And the church that she founded, Angelus Temple, is actually still alive and running. It's now called the Dream Center, I believe. And I encourage anyone, if you're ever in Los Angeles, go and visit because you will experience something that I think that she would like, which is the, think of the showiest form of American Christianity. And I don't say that in a bad way <laughs> at all, but just the most, you know, an elaborate production and then amp that up by times about 10. Right. And that's what you'll experience. The one uh, image I have is her coming on stage in a white, white, long dress and a big lights on her, very dramatic entrance. Absolutely. Legend has it that her friend, Charlie Chaplin, helped her design Angelus Temple. Oh, how about that? <laughs> and yeah, we've all heard of him. And so she designed it in a way, it's a theater, really. There was an orchestra pit, a proscenium arch. And when she comes out, she came out and one of her favorite, most famous sermons was about Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride of Christ. And so you're absolutely right. She would often wear a white dress looking very bridal and carry a big bouquet of roses and talk about meeting Jesus in the air. So that was one of her, her go-to moments. It's really a smart idea when you think about it as a woman who's preaching, because the, the idea of the church as the bride and Jesus as, as the bridegroom, of course, that's a really popular biblical metaphor. It's a way of allowing a woman to enact many of the things that we associate with womanliness and womanhood and also 
be preaching. So it was smart too, when you think about it, in addition to it being just a good show and, and kind of flamboyant. And I guess we shouldn't, unless you uh, think otherwise, Leah, but I guess I take the fact that she was, in fact, did have the gift of healing, and then many people she did touch and pray for were healed. So that didn't uh, hurt her reputation in that regard, no. But she did seem to be a, a gifted woman. That's right. And I uh, shout out to the Foursquare Heritage Center. If you're in Los Angeles and you go to the Dream Center, I also encourage you all to go to the they have a, they've remodeled her old parsonage and it is a, they call it a heritage center, not a museum, but it's basically kind of like a museum. And there's a section where they have glass cases where there are crutches and eye patches and yeah, all these yeah. kinds of things. People who attended her services after they left, they said, Hey, I don't need this anymore. So you're right. That didn't hurt at all. People wanted to know what that was about. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Fearfully and Wonderfully, The Marvel of Bearing God's Image, a newly updated and combined book by Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey from InterVarsity Press. I spoke to Johnny Erickson Tata about how the book impacted her life. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Philip. I knew Philip when I fresh got out of the hospital and lived on the Maryland farm back in the 70s. Philip has always had a strong empathy for people who suffer greatly. For him, it's been an observation not only into the character of those who suffer, but an observation into the character of God. I learned a great deal from him. I think he learned a great deal from me. He would often connect me with people that he met who were struggling with significant disabilities, and he thought I might be able to encourage them. I so appreciated the book Fearfully and Wonderfully Made when it first came out. I read that book knowing that here's a man who understands the way the body works and the struggles it can bring upon those who wrestle with the goodness of God in pain. For 40% off and free U.S. shipping on this book and any other IVP title, visit ivpress.com and use promo code POD19. That's POD19. One thing that was interesting when I was preparing for this podcast is that I was calling it the Pentecostal movement, but we were talking about denominations. And so that seems to suggest a shift in how these types of things play out or mature. And I'm wondering, Leah, if you see like any relationship between the fact that within the Pentecostal movement, or in this case, when we're talking about Amy Semple McPherson, she's the founder of the denomination, women played a big role there. But then as these movements turned into institutions, you don't find as many women serving in top denominational leadership positions. Yes. You know, I think that the case of Foursquare is interesting to most people because there's a female founder. And so because there's a female founder and it's after her, there hasn't been one. People are interested in that. But really, it's something that a question we could ask of many different forms of of Christianity, which is denominations that say that they fully endorse women in any role of leadership. And of course, not all do, but for the ones who say that they do, but then their practice doesn't match that. What I've found is that it's usually pretty practical things. You know, if you can have a group that says we believe in women in ministry leadership, but it's really difficult to resist what is going on in the culture overall if you're not vigilant about it. So if, for example, you're an American denomination in the early to mid 20th century, there's just not 
a lot of women in leadership roles in in society overall. And so to have a woman in a top level of executive leadership, that's just really different than the world that is around you. So Foursquare, there's many different reasons that are specific to individual denominations as to why women don't advance in executive levels of leadership. But part of it just has to do with it. It's just so different than society at large. I did want to also kind of just, I don't know, ask you about another observation that I have, which is that it does seem that a number of charismatic or Pentecostal churches, you'll see husband and wives who are leading both of those churches, which is something that I think is interesting. And then I also noticed in this particular instance, when Pastor Donna got this leadership role that she is not married, she is single, which is also, at least in my experience in covering Christianity, kind of an aberration. But is singleness and marriage, how are they kind of interacted with within the Pentecostal world? Is that any different than what mainstream evangelicalism looks like overall? Oh, my gosh. I wish we had another hour or so to talk about this because you are asking some of the questions that I get a huge kick out of asking myself. So thank you. Um, Here you go. Yeah. Okay. Let's let, we'll just get started on it. We can, we can have a part two another time. One of the things that, one of the quirks I think of the Foursquare church is that they're really, it's very common for them to have ministry couples. So they'll have husbands and wives ministering together. And in many cases, the church, you know, say it's a husband and wife, they're they're the lead pastors. Functionally, the husband will be the lead pastor and the woman, uh, the wife will be the co-pastor slash administrative person or women's ministries or something like that. But they are pictured, you know, like on the website as a pair. I actually think in Foursquare that that has to do more with its um, Salvation Army roots. So Amy Semple McPherson had a couple of influences, the Methodism and the Salvation Army and many other things, Christian Missionary Alliance too. But but this in the Salvation Army, Salvation Army people will know this, that they do a lot of couples ministry. So I think part of it has to do with that. But then also, I think that at least in the celebrity versions of it, there's something that Americans seem to like about a husband-wife duo in that role. So in the celebrity versions of charismatic or Pentecostal ministries, you'll often see the husband and the wife doing things like the Osteens, for example, Joel and Victoria Osteen. They definitely, like when you see them together, they're they're a portrait of a certain ideal that people seem to like. It's almost like, I don't want to be too crass, but to use like a lifestyle branding kind of term, (laughs) that's in part what they're displaying. Um, But there are a lot of reasons why the couple model seems to work. But part of it's like, we, we just like to watch families, you know? So I'm thinking of something that these people aren't four square or Pentecostal pastors at all, but I was thinking of Fixer Upper. Yeah, Chip and Chip Joanna. And Joanna Gaines, mm-hmm. right? That show would not be that show without mm-hmm. both of them. And there's something that we find to be so comforting, I think, about a mom and a dad, you know. <laughs> I think probably congregations like that too. I was a pastor's wife for a, a period uh, in my life, and I can definitely attest to the fact that people were interested in what my husband was doing, but also in what I was doing. So for the first time in my life, they were people were asking questions about what books I was reading or, you know, what movies I was watching. And for shame, I was really into Harry Potter at the time, which can go both ways. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry we invited you on the show. Well, the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. But you know, your question about celibacy or singleness, I think is really interesting because you're right. Like all the way back to the beginning of the Protestant movement, we tend to imagine the ideal minister as like a married nuclear family. And part of that goes all the way back to Martin Luther and and Katerina. But in our context, I think that it's it's a little bit unusual to see a single, particularly a single woman, because Protestants actively early on rejected the traditional model that is present within Roman Catholicism, which includes a role for celibacy in the ministry. So those norms go so far back. But in some ways, you could see how it would be taking on a a massive role in any large organization. You can see how singleness is could be a real asset because it's a lot of time and energy. But I don't know anything about the particulars of the the Assemblies of God. So I couldn't weigh in on that, but I couldn't resist saying that, yeah, we, we sort of have in our imagination one thing, but there's there's a broader palette that we could we could work with. Yeah, I will say just going crossing uh, traditions, that is a tradition in many Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox churches there where priests can be married, bishops cannot be, but priests can be. And often the priest is looked up to as a revered figure, certainly, but so is his wife, who's often called Mama last name or Mama by her first name. She's sort of the congregation's mother. He is the congregation's father. So there's very much that sense in that tradition as well. Leah, you had mentioned that oftentimes women serve as the de facto assistant or pastor over a smaller amount of ministries. Do you ever see situations where women are truly seen as co-pastors? Absolutely. That does happen. It is rarer, but it certainly happens. I think that in, in those scenarios, congregations have a little bit different of an imagination in terms of what do we think a woman's role is in the church? So yes, it happens. And then I guess one final question related to that. So going back to the sense of like calling and having this experience, is that important then that both the husband and the wife share that same sense of calling? Is it often something that they experience together or talk about in communal terms? I think you get both. So sometimes couples are talk about having an experience together, but you also have instances where they don't happen simultaneously. In fact, Amy Simple McPherson is a great example of she had her own distinct calling experience, even though she had that experience as she was about to marry her first husband. So I think that, yeah, it can happen both ways. As we know, Leah, Pentecostalism is really surging and just growing by leaps and bounds around the world. I'm I'm curious about two things. One, as we see it move into and move in major ways in the majority world, so South America and Africa, are we similarly seeing women pastors and women leaders in those places? And two, I'm just curious if there's a relationship between it growing in your mind and its surging popularity. You know, the thing about Pentecostalism is it's so different from something like Roman Catholicism or the Presbyterian Church or the Baptist, in part because it doesn't have a centralized leadership or a an agreed-upon set of theologies or even practices. So it's so hard to say in one sentence, like, this is what's happening in global Pentecostalism. I would guess, because I don't know what's happening in every corner of the world wherein there are, there are Pentecostals, but in the, I don't know, around half a billion of them, you'll find pockets wherein women have tremendous amounts of leadership 
And then you'll find areas within the Pentecostal movement wherein women have uber traditional roles and it's very traditional hierarchies. So unfortunately, it's just too big to be able to make a a generalized statement about it. But I'll say this to your second question. I think that that big, expansive sense of identity is one of the keys to its success. So it is so large and so varied and so adaptable and adaptive that I think that's why it has gone from zero to one of the largest forms of Christianity in a in a really pretty short period of time. Really, really short astoundingly short, yeah, in Christian history. And along with that comes some wonderful, dynamic, orthodox, in a sense, sane Pentecostal enthusiasm. And then you get you also get heterodox churches and even heretical churches. So it's an amazing phenomenon that I just love. I love watching. It is. It's that high risk, high reward. Aspect. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I said at the top of the podcast, I love talking about this particular expression of Christianity. And so hopefully we will talk about it some more. All right. If you have feedback about our show, I'm sure we said nothing to offend anyone like usual. <laughs> we just we got a lot of praise for last week's episode. So I'm just expecting it to come in again. No, I'm kidding. If you have any type of feedback that you want to share with us, you can send us an email, podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. For everyone who wants to support the show, I am constantly trying to get people to subscribe to Christianity Today magazine, which is a huge way that you end up doing that. And we are still in the middle of our July-August issue. And Mark, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about another piece since there you know, are usually quite a few that just kind of has stuck with you. Yeah, I think this piece, uh, there is, we have one piece in the current issue, Getting Hunger to Zero. And I will say, anyone who knows me knows I'm a, more of a political realist and uh, believing that if there's if there's any progress we can make on the social or political front, it's going to be very gradual and very slow. But I was caught unawares in the last couple of decades by the how quickly the poverty rate has been sabotaged by economic developments in China and in India, among other places, dramatically reducing world poverty. So when someone comes along and says, like our, our like our the subtitle says, why one expert believes that with the right mix of public, private, and church-based efforts, we can give everyone enough food to eat. I used to roll my eyes at that. I would now say I would I would read that with seriousness. It still may be very difficult. It still may even th- turn out to be impossible. But given the dramatic changes in the rate of poverty, it makes me think, well, maybe we can. Maybe we can do that. So I'd encourage you to read that. One thing that I think that that article or it's actually an interview does really well is it talks about part of actually making sure people don't go hungry is an intense amount of humans cooperating with humans if that makes sense. So there's a lot of different social structures and groups and governments and people that have to be on the same page as far as that goes. So get along with other people. <laughs> and other well, people that, don't have to start. That, then that's what makes me discouraged. So there okay, you go. Okay. <laughs> the cynic speaks again. You should yeah, still yeah. read the article, though, and then you can know no, how no. to argue with it. I think it's a, it's a reasonable hypothesis to, to entertain and to even try to put into action. Absolutely. All right, Mark, you can hype your newsletter now if you want to. Should I do it like Amy Simple McPherson would or should yes. I do it like Mark Galley did? <laughs> In the spirit of Amy. No, I can't do that. I can't even fake that. <laughs> okay. I'm wear- I am wearing a pink shirt, so it's a little bit, Okay. you know. Well, no one of, actually knows if that's true. Push, but... Pushy for me, but whatever. 
It's a weekly newsletter in which I link to articles I find interesting that I think make good comment or give us something to think about, about current events, about our faith, a variety of topics, and then comment on them. So you can link to it with, by going to christianitytoday.com slash the galley report. That's spelled G-A-L-L-I. And you sub- can subscribe and get a weekly edition. All right. So if you'd like to read that article, you can do that by becoming a subscriber. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. Orderct.com slash quick to listen. We're going to do precious moments now. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy. We're skipping Mark today since <laughs> <laughs> he's talked too much. Let me summarize it. I went on. I went no, to no, vacation. No. In fact, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Oh, I vowed sorry, not to do that. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, as much as I love my grandchildren and fly fishing, we're going to skip that today. So as we were talking, I decided to look up uh, on my phone one of Amy Simple McPherson's sermons that I absolutely loved when I was editing the the magazine, and I would that that was a precious moment back then, and it still is as I reread it. She she has this sermon in which she criticizes churches for sometimes being so faithful to the Bible that it makes Jesus sound like he was the great I was. He used to perform miracles. He used to do healing. And people walk by in desperate need, but all they hear about is the great I was. But then she uh, she says this, Pitapat the street lies before. It is still with people filled, but they are no longer passing by. The crowds are passing in. They fill the pews and the galleries. They stand in the aisles and climb to the windowsills. They pack the doorways and they stand on the stairs. The streets and the lanes are filled. The gospel nets are full to the bursting and there is no more room to contain the multitude and that throng that place. And out over the heads of the people, I hear the message ring, Awake, thou that sleepest, arise from the dead. The Lord still lives today. His power has never abated. His word has never changed. The things he did in the Bible days, he still lives to do today. Not a burden is there. He cannot bear, nor a fetter he cannot break. Here, bring your sins. He'll wash them away. Here, bring your sicknesses. He'll heal you today. We serve not a dead, but a living God. Not I was, but the great I am. It's just a magnificent piece of rhetoric and really good gospel preaching in the end. And we can put a link to that in our show notes yeah. if people want to read the whole thing. Yeah. All right, Leah, do you want to go? I mean, I should say something about my family who I love dearly. Love you all. Um, but I'm going to go with, <laughs> I'm going to go with a, the return. I, I got to watch Veronica Mars, the, the most recent season of Veronica Mars. And this is one of my favorite TV shows ever. And my students know that I am a huge TV fan. That is my hobby. Other people go hiking and camping in the Pacific Northwest, but I like to watch TV. Uh, Veronica Mars is a classic noir detective series. And what I love about noir and the series in particular is it asks this timeless question of how to be a good person in a corrupt environment or a corrupt system. That is a question that stands for all time, really, but it's one that I've been thinking about and I've really enjoyed watching it play out on Veronica Mars. Do you feel like they did well in terms of like carrying over the best parts of like the themes and the characters with doing this? It's not a reboot, right? It's just that they just started, you know, picked up where they left off or? It's a continuation. Morgan, have you seen it? the original version of it? I have not. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, no, no, that's okay. You should definitely go see it. But I want to say that it's available on Netflix. But I'll just say this, is that Veronica Mars, some of the stuff that I loved from the original series included a lot of class and race 
criticism, you know, storylines that played that out. There wasn't as much of that, but a lot of the traditional noir elements are are still there. Enough are still there to where I really enjoyed it. And I'm just going to make a full confession. I am a diehard fan. In fact, they had a, a fan-sponsored film where you could like buy $50 fan film tickets and then it we produced it together through crowdsourcing <laughs> i am my husband and i joke we are movie producers um because we contributed to veronica Mars. so I, I i know i'm going way overboard and you just that is my precious moment so question though then like this podcast that you do is it actually inclusive of all parts of pop culture or is it actually a veronica mars podcast disguise <laughs> You know what? I haven't been able to get my co-host to watch <gasps> Veronica Mars with me. I know. So this is this is my outlet. You guys are helping me. But no, we cover any and all forms. We call them pop culture artifacts. So a lot of times we end up talking about TV. We did an episode on The Handmaid's Tale. I haven't yet convinced my my podcasting partner to do Battlestar Galactica with me, but I know I will one of these days because I'm tenacious. But we could also be talking about a news story or some weird YouTube viral hit. So yeah, we talk about anything and everything, but we use that as a jumping off point to talk about big theological and religious studies issues with kind of a fun and simple start. All right. So remind people the name of the podcast and where else they might be able to find you online. It is Weird Religion, weirdreligion.com. And you can find the podcast on most major places where you can get podcasts like Spotify or iTunes. And then feel free to look me up um, at my university page, georgefox.edu. My precious moment is that I got an advanced copy of Rachel Den Hollander's new book. It is called What is a Girl Worth? My Story of Breaking the Silence and Exposing the Truth about Larry Nasser and USA Gymnastics. And true confession, I do not read a lot of Christian books. I read about a lot of Christian books. So I think that's similar. But I get that. But I like actually wanted to read her book. I interviewed her last year just because of many of the ways that she kind of intersects with interests, be that gymnastics or my job, given that I interviewed her and that she has spoken directly about sex abuse in the church. I thought it would be good to read. And the book is extremely compelling and is actually really well written, which is not true for every memoir that's out there, but I feel like you can really feel Rachel's voice in it. And it's also just fascinating. The part that I just got to right now is where she is specifically talking about how she was going to be interviewed by her by the by the paper that was going to be publishing these allegations and all the strategy that went into it about how she wanted to communicate her side, how she wanted to be a good communicator to other girls that she knew had been abused, how she wanted to communicate things to the criminal justice system, how she wanted to communicate things to the media, how she wanted to communicate things to people who are not going to believe her. And her just kind of like laying that all out there is really fascinating and also a really huge indictment, I guess, on all of us that someone who's experienced this much trauma in their life has to be that sensitive, I guess, to how their message is, you know, is going to be received. But the book is really good and I highly recommend it. Okay, it comes out on September 10th, but you can pre-order it right now. And people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. You can find the podcast on Spotify. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. If you go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review it. That would be great. Thank you everyone. And we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.